Today's episode is presented by Advanced Recruiting Intelligence, ARI. Visit ARIRecruiting.com to see how college coaches are using this new technology to be smarter recruiters. And now, it's time for the show. That's right. It's time for the big season four premiere of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast with your host, a man guaranteed to be voted off the island first, and America's college recruiting guru, Dan Tudor. Well, Coach, if you got that reference just there, being voted off the island, it's because it has everything to do with our very special guest as we open up Season 4 of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast, Lauren O'Connell. If the name doesn't sound familiar, that means you're not a fan of the show of Survivor. Shame on you. One of the best reality shows, and in fact, the first reality show on network television. It opened up the genre, and of course, that's where people are transported to an island. They don't know each other, and they have to survive and strategize and compete against each other to win the million-dollar prize at the end. Well, Lauren O'Connell, our guest today, did that. She was one of the finalists. She made it to the end of uh, one of the final episodes of the show and competed wonderfully. And what's special about Lauren is she's a former Division One athlete, played soccer at Baylor University, and we're going to talk to her about a couple of different things. We're going to talk to her about her recruiting process and what made an impact with her. We're going to talk about, of course, the show and how she used those Division One athletic skills and and what she learned as an athlete in college to compete at that level in a very extreme environment against really uh, some very unique challenges that she faced and what it's like to be on the show and, and what was her strategy and what was going through her mind. So if you're a survivor geek like I am, you're going to love it because you're going to go inside this last season that she competed on. And then we're also going to, to wrap it up by, by having her talk about uh, the, the, the lessons that she learned. And we're going to apply those to coaching and recruiting and team building and leadership and communication and relationship building. And we are packing so much into this first episode. Uh, that's why I'm so excited about it because uh, it's it's going to mean a lot, I think, and it's going to give you a lot of information that will help you start off this new recruiting year the right way. And that is with a focus on relationships and also some strategy because I think that's sometimes lacking in the way that coaches approach recruiting. So as we start off this conversation, which I'm going to warn you is a long one, uh, I just want to let you know that um, that the focus here is you, Coach. We want to have it be lessons that you're learning that you can apply immediately to your uh, your recruiting year. Uh, one little side note that uh, that I thought I would mention is that uh, Lauren O'Connell is kind of a friend of the family. Uh, I went to high school with her mom, Jill, and uh, good friends over the last many years with her father, Joey. Uh, and I think the last time I saw Lauren face-to-face was probably when she was seven or eight years old. I believe it was at a wedding of somebody we uh, all mutually knew. And uh, so yeah, that, was, that was the last time that I actually saw her. We did this phone interview uh, in the summer of 2019 as she was running around uh, vacationing with family and uh, getting ready to go to grad school. 
and uh, really just uh, she's going to talk about uh, who she is and what she's all about. Just for some background, I thought I would give you uh, all of that. So without any further ado, because like I said, this is going to be a long episode, but Coach, what a great conversation this is. You're, you're going to love it. Um, let's jump in and talk to Lauren and I guess at first talk about her recruiting process and what that was like and what impacted her and and just growing up in Bakersfield, California and playing soccer, what were her priorities and how did she get started on this crazy journey from college athlete to finalist on Survivor? So I'm going to start with the athletic recruiting mm-hmm. the athletic and recruiting side of it. Um, and go back to when you were playing club soccer for who knows how long in yeah. uh, in, in Bakersfield. Um, and the, the first question I have is, what was the goal? Like, what when you started playing, what was the thing that you started playing for? And what was sort of the bigger picture as you started to you know start young, and then as you go on through um, through the levels and you get older, what what was sort of the goal of it all for you? That's such an interesting question, um, and I don't know that I have an incredible answer for it, only because I really remember soccer being something that I did with my dad, and I remember two big instances when I was younger, probably around, I'd say, 10. Um, I was just playing uh, ASO soccer in Bakersfield, and my dad was coaching, and we were in, I don't even know, maybe the championship game of ASO. So, like, not even that big of a deal. <laughs> right. But I remember our, our team, and I'm 10 years old, right? And so yeah. I remember our team goes to the finals, and we tie, and so we go into penalty kicks. Um, and I might have some of the details mixed up, but what I remember is that I missed my penalty kick. I shot it right over the goal, and we lost. And so I remember my dad for – I. I would say maybe two years straight, he mm-hmm. would send me out to our backyard. We had this big tack room in our backyard and he would set up, he set up lines, kind of how big a goal would be. And he had me um, you know, 12 yards out and he said, okay, you will never miss a penalty kick again. And he had me practice every day. I'd shoot probably 50 penalty kicks out there together. He would stand out there and watch me. And I would, I would just shoot it bottom right corner, bottom right corner, bottom right corner, which is interesting because really for a right, a right footed player shooting mm-hmm. it to the left corner is easier. But for some reason I wanted bottom right corner and I got, I got good at it. You know, I got good at it to the fact where I have not missed a penalty kick for the rest of my career. But I think I remember that because it was a way for my dad and I to really bond. And so that was, that's like my first memory of soccer and why it was so important to me. And then I think I really started loving it when I was a little bit older and I had just started on a club team. So I think I was maybe 11 or 12. I'm not really sure. And I all of a sudden was kind of good. You know, it's it's more fun when you're good, when you're good at things. And I don't think it ever crossed my mind that I was going to play college and soccer, or sorry, going to play soccer in college. And I don't know why. I think that it was just something that I did because I loved it. I loved playing. I loved the adrenaline I got from practices. I loved being part of a team. And I loved how close it made my dad and I. It gave us something to do on the weekends 
during the week. It gave us something to talk about all the time. And um, that's really where my love of it came from. And it wasn't until I would say sophomore year in high school when I realized, wow, I, I could play soccer in college. And that became the goal. And it wasn't so much, oh, this so is just something. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to ask, so did your dad, um, was he the one that, did he ever mention it? Did he ever say, you know, as the 11, 12 year old, hey, sweetie, you keep doing this, you can, you know, get a college scholarship. And I asked that because, no. okay, yeah, well, that's interesting because that's the message that a lot of coaches hear from parents and the stories that are out there about, you know, why does this kid develop? And, and no matter what the sport, and it's sort of the parents behind the, driving it. But it's right. interesting that your dad, that wasn't the case. He wasn't the, no. the stereotypical, um, you know, college sports-obsessed dad that you Oh, gosh, was. no, okay. not, a, not at all. I mean, it really was just something that we loved together. And that being said, my dad was a harsh critic. And my dad is the first to tell you when you do well and the first to tell you when you don't, you know, it's like he always told me, and this is something that I appreciate so deeply now. It's like, he's not going to tell me that I did well in a game if I didn't, because then right. when I do well, his compliments don't mean as much. You know, it's not like I, I'm dying for his compliments, but I, I really respect his opinion. And so after every game, no matter how old I was, first person I walked to after, you know, we, the team comes together, we all, um, we talk about the game, we talk to the coach, and then, you know, you grab your bag and you walk away to your family. And the first person I go to, no matter the age, no matter the game, no matter how I played is my dad. And I would hug him. And I know this. And if I played well, and I have a very good gauge on whether or not I played well, mm -hmm. so I don't necessarily need him to tell me, but I know that I played extremely well if he said, great job. If he said, good job, then I played, okay, that was decent. <laughs> and if he said, how are you feeling? I know that I played terrible. <laughs> and it, it's just a funny gauge I had on, on him, and that's just the relationship we had. Is he, he was very honest with me, and it made, it made soccer it, – it there was less pressure, I feel like. It wasn't that I was playing for a scholarship. I was just playing in a very honest way of I love this game and it's something that I'm good at because I work hard at it. And I will, right. I will be the first to tell you I am not the most gifted soccer player. Never have been. Um, I am not the quickest. <laughs> I am not. And what position um, did you play in high school? I play, so in high school I played center back. Yeah, okay. we played a flat back four in high school, and I played center back. Um, really growing up, I played center mid. I was always the center mid. Um, and then high school, I played center back. And then in college, Baylor played um, a unique system until my senior year. So I played more of a marking center mid and then a marking back. Um, and we can get into that later. Yeah. But, yeah, um, yeah well, I'm not the quickest, and I'm, I'm not the most technical. But – I know that I I can anticipate really well and I work really hard and I really attribute that a lot to honestly going out to our tack room when I was 10 years old and having my dad tell me you're never going to miss a PK again and then seeing the, that that work and that effort come to fruition as I grew older. It's like if you work for something, then that's what you'll get. Um, I right. think that the, the outcome really mimics your effort. 
So sophomore year, you start getting good, and probably around that time or into the junior year, you start, I'm assuming, you start maybe hearing from from schools, your club coach is saying, hey, you know, Lauren, you're really good, or can you just sort of walk through how that all started, that process? I absolutely can, Um, and it's going to be a much different story than I think you are anticipating. Sure. Uh, I played on a team in Bakersfield my freshman and sophomore year, no, my freshman year of high school, Um, and then I had the chance to play on a different team in Bakersfield, but it was about my sophomore year when I realized I have a chance to play in college, and in order to do that, I need to play on the best team that is available, and so I switched teams and was playing on this new team where we started going to these these tournaments that college coaches were coming to. And this was the first time that I had ever been at a showcase with a college coach ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was, was what year in high school now? This is my sophomore year in high school. Okay, sophomore. And this was the first I had ever really heard about showcases. I mean, I know that doesn't, that doesn't sound like someone who was ever going to play in college, but I just didn't know. You didn't know that sure. in Bakersfield really. It wasn't something that I was, was, familiar with and so we're going to the showcases and I wouldn't say I was getting a ton of interest my sophomore year um, and then my junior year came around and I actually had the opportunity to play with this team from Hawaii and, and so I had to make a decision on whether or not I was going to play with this team uh, that was playing in a huge showcase or if I was going to play with my team. And um, that took a very big toll on me because, again, I respected my coach, I respected sure. my teammates, and I am an extremely loyal teammate. I feel like you lose together, you win together. Um, and that was one of the – some business decisions. That exactly. That, exactly. That it was, it was hard. And, and can I jump in and ask, too – yeah, and, and can I ask, too, the – your your parent involvement in that yeah. because those are yeah. those are some big decisions for Absolutely. high school sophomore you know junior to make so what what can I, how did your parents approach that whole that whole thing in helping a huge role in that I mean I would say I did not make any of those decisions without my parents uh, input and really approval honestly um, sure. I think that had they said you know we don't want you to switch club teams I don't think I would have done it. Um, I think if they had said, you know, we don't want you to go play with for this ECNL team, I don't think I would have. And that's that's only because I respect their their um, opinions so much. And I felt like they had a better grasp on really what was going on because, again, I was very naive to the recruiting process. I was very naive to what really went down in order to play college and soccer, or soccer in college. Right. And um, so they played a huge, huge role. And I wasn't looking to play at the highest level at this point because I felt like where I was was the highest level. I wasn't, I wasn't aware of what was going on. I felt like we prayed together. We talked about it. We talked about the logistics of what are we going to do. I'm going into my senior year, and I really haven't had a ton of options. Um, and... I was assuming I wasn't going to play in college. I just didn't have the, I didn't have the offers from a school I wanted to go to. And that is a huge point I want to make is I love soccer and I absolutely wanted to play in college, but I wanted to play at a school I wanted to be at 
with teammates I loved and coaches I respected because on the off chance that I was injured and was unable to play, I didn't want soccer to be the only reason I chose that school. Um, Okay. That was your thought process. That was my thought process. And so at this point, going into my senior year, I did not have any offers from schools that I – that I felt like I wanted to go to. Um, and so I decided with my mom and dad that this God had opened a door and this was my last chance. And if I wanted to play soccer in college, which I desperately did, um, if I wanted to play soccer at a college that I loved, then this was, this was it. This was my last sure. chance. I had to do it. I wanted to, I wanted to know that I gave absolutely everything and did absolutely everything I could. And if it didn't work out, it didn't work out. And at the end of the day, if that meant I had to drive five hours um, to practice two times a week and then four hours to games on the weekends, then I was going to do it because I wanted to play soccer at a school I loved. Um, And so I joined the team, I believe, in – or I joined the SoCal Blues, I believe, in May. It may have been June. Um, and I actually ended up going to the Baylor soccer camp in July, I believe. They invited me out to a camp there. I mean, I was I, I was on this team for a month, and I was already getting um, more attention than I right. had in, in a long time. Um, and, so, and so that included a lot of schools. And you mentioned you went straight to the Baylor camp. I'm just wondering yeah. what – so why Baylor of, of all the schools and you don't need to get into the other schools that you didn't end up going yeah. to, but obviously I'm assuming that they are other division ones. There are other mm-hmm. good schools, good programs, good yeah. coaches. So walk me through sort of how you started to narrow down that, that, you know, all the options into something that was manageable for you and your family. Right. So like I said before, to me, it was important to be at a school that I wanted to go to. And so we talked about, okay, what are the schools you would apply to if you couldn't play soccer? And we made a list of all the schools I would apply to if I couldn't play soccer. And Baylor was one of them. It was one, it had the major that I wanted. It's the only school in the nation that had that major. Um, It was a, it had a huge Christian background. Uh, It was close to my grandparents in Austin. It was um, and this is before I even knew anything about the team. I had not met sure, the team. Sure. I had not met the coaches. Um, and so it was something that I was interested in. I, I, I was interested in that school. And so when they reached out about the camp, um, I said, of course, of course I'll go. And really it was within, I'd say, minutes of being, of meeting Paul. And I think I met Paul first, um, and then Chuck and then Marcy. Uh, I knew that I loved them. The coaching them. staff at Baylor. Yes, the coaching staff at Baylor, yes. Sorry. Um, I knew that I loved them and I loved the environment. I loved the girls. I mean, you can just tell when a team loves each other and you can tell when a team isn't very close. And just being at that camp from the, from the recruit, not from the recruitment side, but from someone who wants to go there, you can see how much these girls love each other and how much of a family they were. And I was drawn to that. Well, while I was at this camp, I actually, I mean, absolutely destroyed my ankle. <laughs> my ankle was so swollen. I mean, I couldn't even walk, right? So this was probably day two of the camp. And so for the rest of the camp, I showed up to every event and stood on the sidelines of every event of all the girls that were, you know, ECNL players that were being recruited as well. Yep. 
Um, and I just cheered. And I was tried to be the best teammate I possibly could. Um, in the back so, of your mind, are you thinking at this point, well, so much for playing soccer at Baylor because yeah. I came to get out? Yeah, so that would be Absolutely. good for mind. Yeah. Okay. I, I thought, there's no chance I'm going to get an offer from here. I can't even play. They were nice to me. You know, Paul, Marcy, and, and Chuck were great, as they always are, but they, they had other stuff going on. They had girls sure. that could actually play. Um, <laughs> and I thought, you know what, maybe – Maybe they'll see me in the fall when we play league. Um, maybe I'll send them more tape. You know, maybe this, maybe that. But I pretty much had written it off. So I leave um, the camp, very discouraged, come home, um, and don't hear anything for a little bit. And I start playing with uh, with the SoCal Blues, and we're playing in games. And I'm getting a couple more offers, interests. Um, I am beginning to get excited about, um, you know, maybe I'll go somewhere else. Maybe I'll go somewhere else. And I believe it was November. Uh, so it was very late in the recruiting process. Time out real quick. So, it, yes. so you're, you, sort of, you sort of put Baylor in this box, you know, it'd be great, but I don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, other coaches, I'm assuming, are, are contacting you, emailing mm-hmm. you, calling. Is that uh, correct there? Yes, yes. Okay, and so all you know during this time, what what is your your heart's at Baylor, and you're talking to these other coaches. So what is what are you communicating? Are you just sort of let, let's keep all the doors open? And absolutely, I, um, okay. you know, there was I had so there was a little bit of a strategy, I guess, in the process that you were playing letting play out as all this. Yeah, I think for me, I. I knew, again, I wanted to go to a school that I felt comfortable at, that I loved, and that I would be okay being at if I was injured. And that was a huge thing for my parents as well, as they told me, they're like, we we don't want you to go somewhere just because you can play soccer there. We want you to go to a school because I was, I also, it's, I should note that I applied to, I sent in my college applications my senior year to every school I wanted to apply to. Um, which was, I think, I I believe 12 different schools. So, um, you know, UCLA, USC, Berkeley, um, Santa Barbara, Notre Dame, you know, the big schools, um, Baylor, TCU. I applied to all of those. Um, and I was not, I was not expecting to play soccer at this point. I, I hadn't found a place that I felt like was the full package, you know, was, was offering me enough, was, um, was somewhere I wanted to be, was somewhere where I really felt called to be and that I loved the right. soccer, I loved the coaches, and I loved the team. I had right. extremely high standards, um, which I know sounds unrealistic, but it was something that was important to me. Sure. And, sure. So and, and just so for the coaches that are listening, that are familiar with what we do, I'll note that, Lauren, you said the word felt twice and loved, yeah. I think, twice. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm, you know, we always wrestle with this is, are, are student athletes making this logical decision or is it an emotional decision? And I hear a lot of emotion <laughs> that, that you, Absolutely. your heart was set um, on, on Baylor. So anyway, there's, I yeah, thought I would absolutely. point that out that, uh, that, that that's, you're the normal, you're the normal student athlete. So. No, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a huge that's a huge point from a soccer standpoint. And I but, also but, and you also still kept the door open with all those that you weren't feeling it just in case. Right, right. Of course, okay. of course. And I applied to all these different schools, and 
um, was I obviously I didn't know if I had gotten in yet because you don't know until April. Sure, sure. And so um, I applied to all these schools, and at this point, I I assumed I would probably get into most of them um, just because of my grades, because of my community service, because of the things I had done in high school. Um, but I didn't know, obviously, and so I believe that it was maybe early November because it was before Surf Cup, and if I remember correctly, Surf Cup is near Thanksgiving, early November, and Baylor called me, Marcy called me actually, which is is frightening as it is because Marcy is incredible, but just very hardcore, you know, she's like mm-hmm. just awesome. But she called me. I'm sitting in my calculus class, and I get a call, and it has a 254 number. And I'm like, that is Waco. And I literally get up from class. My teacher is teaching, like full-on teaching. Right. I grab my phone, and I just like, walk out of class. And you're not allowed to have phones on campus. Like, you're, you, yeah, I shouldn't have had my phone out, but I'm glad yeah. I did. And I yeah. answer it. And she goes, hey, Lauren, it's uh, Marcy Jobson from, from Baylor. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I said, hi, you know, how how are you? And we had a full-on conversation, and at the end of it, she offered me a spot. Um, and I said, wow, thank you so much. Uh, I need to talk to my parents. I called my parents, told them what had happened, and my dad said, do you want to go there? And I said, yes, more than anything. And again, I go back to, I felt like throughout my entire process uh, from 10 years old to that moment, my senior year, that God had opened and closed doors for a reason. And I felt like there's no way that the school I wanted to go to or the school that I loved called me out of the blue, no contact really since July. We had, we had exchanged emails um, and they were, they were following me, but um, that called me out of the blue in November and offered me a spot. And I could say no. Um, and so I called my mom and dad, and we talked about it. And I called Marcy back, I'm pretty sure, maybe an hour later, and I accepted. And that was, that was the end that. of that. Yeah, that was <laughs> the end of that. that. <laughs> it, was, it was, yeah. It was very exciting. Um, I still remember that entire day just being a complete blur and not really feeling real um, and right. being very, very excited. And just, just knowing, I think for, for me, it was a lot, of, a lot of uncertainty of where am I going to go in a year. And, I mean, every senior feels that way, whether or not you're a student athlete or not, um, because you don't know where you're going until April and, or March, or I don't even know when right. college admissions goes back, but um, around that time. And so, and a lot of the girls on my team had known where they were going since sophomore year. You know, I'm playing with, with Allison, who was the keeper at Stanford. I'm playing with the Qualwinder twins, who were, had been committed to Notre Dame forever. I had girls that were committed to Northwestern, girls to USC. I just, amazing, talented girls that had known where they were going, and I, I didn't. And right. so to finally feel like, not only do I know where I'm going, but it's something that I'm so extremely proud of and excited for, um, was probably the most overwhelming feeling in that moment of oh, I'm um, sure. yeah I'm sure yeah it was very very exciting and from then on it just it full steam ahead I was a I was a Baylor okay. bear so so just let me tell what if for a second that if Marcy doesn't call and Baylor doesn't offer and that mm-hmm. sort of that the perfect scenario for Lauren O'Connell dries up um what would the attitude have been going out 
you know, with your others and it's an impressive list and, mm-hmm. um, and everything. But so what would there have been the excitement? Do you sort of feel like, well, okay, that one's gone, but all right, that's just not the plan. And I'm going to go head, head, you know, headstrong head first into uh, these others and I'm going to love it wherever I go. Was that sort of the yeah, answer? I think, have been? Yeah, okay. I think that there were definitely, um, if, we're, if we're playing the what if game, there were definitely yeah. other options um, that I think I would have been, had I ended up there, I think I would have made, ha- had an incredible time. I think it would have been an amazing experience. Um, and they, ha- having said that, I also got into every school I applied to. didn't know that until April. Um, but <laughs> that would have been an option too, you know? So yeah. I-, I think if we are playing the what if game, there are so many what ifs that could have happened. Um, and from an, from a sim- simply soccer standpoint, I think you don't, when it comes to recruiting, I think, um, and of course I have very limited uh, limited experience with it, sure. but I think that there's not necessarily a wrong decision. I think that you make the decision and then you make it right. So whether or not I chose Baylor or not, say I'd gone somewhere else, that would have been the right decision because I would have done everything in my power to make it one. I would have made wow. it the best experience possible. I would have that's- made... I would have thrown myself into it wholeheartedly. And I think that that's what makes or breaks your college experience is how committed are you and, and whether or not you love the coaches or you love your playing time or you love your teammates. I mean, all of those are great things to have. It's just, okay, this is my decision and I'm going to make it right. Right. It's so interesting that you say that because a lot of times we'll talk with coaches and we'll hear a coach say something to the effect of, you know, I want kids here who want to play here, who are in love right. with our school, love the program and everything. And the conclusion that I've sort of come to after talking to like 12 or 13,000 student athletes over 15 years is that I don't think they, they fully fall in love with the school until they're fully committed to that school and that program. So it's almost like if I fall in love with it, my heart's going to get broken. And so I'm not going to do that mm-hmm. until I know. And then once I'm there, then I'm going to love it. And with that, is that fair? Do you think is that that's had it been I, one I, of those other schools that you would have, you would have fallen in, you would have learned to love it and, and had a great experience after committing to it. Absolutely. I think when you say that one thing that I am reminded of is what Marcy, the head coach at Baylor, my freshman year um, said was we're going to grow your heart. We're going to grow your heart. And personally, I didn't believe her. I didn't think, I think you either have heart or you don't. Um, But she proved me wrong. I think that when it comes to athletics, your heart can grow. And it grows because of the teammates you're around. It it grows from, honestly, dying during a practice. You know, you, you go to a practice and you give everything you have with those people around you. You give everything you have to the coaches that you trust. You give everything you have on a daily basis. You don't have any other choice but to love it and to fall in love with it because you've given everything. And when you give everything to something, you have a stake in it. You have a reason for why you're playing. You have a reason behind why you're waking up at 530 in the morning to go run laps around a soccer field. You know, you have a why. And I right. think that that's a huge reason and a huge thing I learned from Baylor is why are you doing this? Why? And it's okay. It's interesting. Like she had, she had to sort of explain that there needed to be a why and that they were going to provide the yeah. why in a sense. Yes, yeah. absolutely. She did. Okay. I didn't, 
I didn't know. And I think that that brings back to the question you asked me at the very beginning is what was the goal? And I didn't have one necessarily because I didn't really have a why other than I love this game and I love the experience and I'm pretty good at it. And so I think that as a college athlete, I don't think that's enough. I don't think, oh, I love this game. Like you have to have a why. Why am I waking up at 5.30? Why am I running until I throw up, which I would not advise, just be more in shape than I was. (laughs) But just, I think it's, But but it sounds like, too, the the, the bridge there was that the coaching staff gave you, but but look, here, here, you're going to need this, and we're going to give it to you, and here's what it's going to do for you. That, and so I think what you're describing is what I hear a lot of college coaches say they want in an athlete. And what I heard you say, though, is that this particular coaching staff actually laid it out and explained, here's, here is your why, and here's how we're going to develop your heart, grow your heart. And yes. without that, it could have, might have been a little bit hard to come up with all that on your own in that environment. Fair enough? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I agree. I think that the coaching staff and the players, the players that were older than me, the seniors, the juniors, the sophomores who had been through it before, and this is just speaking fully from my freshman year when all of this sure. was new, um, they, they knew what it took to be a collegiate athlete, and they knew that as a freshman, no matter how good you are, and you can be the best soccer, football, baseball, hockey, whatever player in the entire nation – you don't know what it's like to be a collegiate athlete and you don't know what it takes until you live it, until you breathe it, until you do it. And those players that were ahead of me, those coaches that were, that I entrusted my abilities and my life with taught me what that was and what that looked like. And I think that that is the most important thing for me or was the most important thing for me as a player was to have someone who didn't just say, this is what we're going to do they showed me this is how we're going to do it. Right. Okay, so you're at Baylor. They're giving you the why. They're growing your heart. And you go on and you have this fairy tale All-American college soccer career, right? <laughs> you would think so, wouldn't you? From all this great stuff. It has, all this has great to be where it's leading. Yeah. It's all I know. Perfect. It's got to be where perfect. it's leading. Um, and I think that that's why I emphasize so much. Um, I was foreshadowing when I said – I wanted to be at a place that I loved with people that I loved in case I got injured. And by golly, did I get injured? <laughs> um, so yeah, explain so to my, everybody what, you know, what. Right. So my, my freshman year, was. right. So my freshman year I, I played and at the end of that season, I found out I had compartment syndrome, um, exertional compartment syndrome. And so really during the entire season, it was extremely, extremely painful for me to run for me to walk, for me to do really anything um, during a practice. And so at the end of that season, I had a dual fasciotomy, and we fixed that. And when I came back for spring season, it was my, I believe it was my first practice back. Yep, it was my first practice back. Um, I tore my ACL. And so I then spent all this. Pause pause right there, because you just went through this, you know, painful freshman year you do the procedure Mm -hmm. you've obviously there's rehab and training that you have to do to get back to you know playing uh you know condition at that level right first practice and like just what what was going through your mind when that when that well you're there at practice i was extreme i would say i have to even back up from 
to before that is I was extremely nervous because I knew that there had been a senior who was incredible in the position that I played. And so um, I thought her position was open. And so when I had to have this dual fasciotomy, I was like, okay, I, I have to come back better. I have to come into the spring ready to play. I have to rehab hard. I have to put my whole heart into this. And so this first practice, and again, I remember it. I, I can see it all. Um, I am playing really well for someone who has been out for, yeah. you know, two, two or three months of absolutely not doing anything and really had, had to learn how to move my feet kind of in a different way. It sounds very odd, but um, mm-hmm. the, the way it works is I had to, the muscles in my calves and in, in my legs just kind of worked a little differently um, or it felt like that. Um, sure. And so I had to, you know, go through that rehab and when I got back I'm I'm playing well and, and we go in and we're playing one V ones and all of a sudden I have my back to my best friend and my roommate at that point. And I go to step over the ball to try and, and, and turn her. And all of a sudden my knee just, Pops and it sounded like when someone's cleat hits a shin guard. And for any soccer coaches, they know exactly what I'm talking about. And there was my coach standing right in front of me, and I fell to the ground. And the look on his face was just, I mean, terror, absolute terror. Uh, and so I'm kind of cry. I don't remember. I don't believe I cried. Um, I was just kind of holding my face because I knew, like. Sure. For people that said, oh, you know, when you tear your ACL, I didn't believe them. Like, there's no way. No, I knew. I, I felt it. I heard it. And it just went like, just, yeah, it was awful. And so I sat there with my hand over my face and all the coaches ran over to me immediately. Everyone saw it. Everyone heard it. And they helped me up. And I, I'm like, okay, well, that stinks. And I got up and I walked off the field and I went to my trainer and, she looked at it and she said, oh, okay, well, it could be something. It was, it was swelling up pretty rapidly. And so she iced it, but I could walk on it. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's not my ACL. I, I don't know. I've never felt an ACL before. It could totally just be, you know, it could be a meniscus. It could be just cartilage. I don't, I don't know. And um, we go to practice the next morning and I, had, I was suited up to play. I was like, you know what? I can walk, so I should be able to play. And I get out there to the field and Marcy walks out there and she goes, what do you think you are doing? You crazy person. I was like, I'm about to run. She's like, you are not running. And that, that, that night I got an MRI and the next day I got the call that it was torn. So, so it the was recovery period for you was, was actually in, uh, since I tore it in February, I had surgery in the middle of March. Um, I didn't I, I sat out my sophomore year. So I redshirted my nice. sophomore year. And so I, I think I was cleared. I was cleared in October, but I didn't actually stop rehab until December. Um, just because there was no point. I wasn't going to play anyways. Sure. I might as well make it as strong as possible. So that entire year was, was shot. Um, right. right. And so, so that, that, then you go on and you have the All-American College soccer career. Again, you would think that's where the story is going, right? You would think. And so uh, I, I get cleared in December and I come back for my sophomore, well, going into my junior, junior year. So we call it junior spring. And I was playing well. I was playing really well, actually. And 
I felt so in shape. I was probably in the best shape I had been my entire life because I had spent an entire year just getting back into shape, just working hard. And I'm not saying that in regards to soccer. Um, my, my skill was still lacking, but shape-wise and the strength I had in my knee, it felt fine. I really did feel great um, after however many months it had been. And I go up to head a ball and I come down and my knee just clicks again and I tore my meniscus. Same knee. Same knee. And I tore my meniscus pretty pretty badly. Uh, and we, we knew it right away. The doctor came and he said, your ACL is still intact um, or it, feel, it feels that way. I would guess your meniscus, just the way it's swelling. Um, and so I ended up having surgery on my meniscus a couple, I'd say a month later. Uh, we tried to see if I could work through, and I just I couldn't run. Um, it was extremely, extremely painful, right. um, and it was it was a spring, so we figured, okay, we'll get the surgery, and it'll be fine by junior year. Um, so junior year comes around, and again, this is extremely frustrating for me because I've spent sure. I've spent an entire year rehabbing, feeling like, okay, I'm ready to get back, I'm ready to get back, um, and my role had now changed. You know, I went from freshman who was was getting playing time, uh, not a ton, but I was getting playing time, and I felt like a contributor to the team. And sophomore year, I had to really change my perspective, and I had to realize that every person on a team plays a role, and whether or not your role is the person who's scoring goals or your role is the person who is sitting there cheering for your team selflessly and handing out water bottles at halftime, you have a role to play. And, and I had to change my role sophomore year. But I was ready now, junior year, to – get back to that role I felt like was most important, you know? It was like, okay, now I can play. And I didn't get to because I tore my meniscus. So right. junior year, I think um, I was just, I was so slow at this point. My knee had been through so much. My body had been through so sure. much. Um, oh, absolutely. And so those first two months, I was just, I was okay. You know, I was, I was fit. I was very fit. Um, technically, Technically, I've never been a superstar. I know this. I'm aware of this. My 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 field uh, awareness was great, um, but quickness and, and technical ability have never been my strong suit. Um, and so that was only multiplied to, after the knee surgeries. And so junior year was going well. Um, and then middle of junior year, I tear my meniscus again, same knee. Uh, and I pretty much was so frustrated at that point that I didn't even know what to do. You know, it was like, I don't understand how I can work so hard. And I said this at the beginning of this podcast is your outcomes mimic your effort, you know, and I'm putting in all the effort. I'm doing everything right. And it just isn't working out. Um, and so junior year again was, was riddled with injuries. Um, and finally at the end of junior year, um, once I had had, um, had that surgery, I went into my senior spring and played as hard as I possibly could my senior spring. I tried, I went to practices just so fired up to finally be able to play and to finally feel like, okay, I'm a senior. Like I deserve this. I've been through so much. And, and that's just not really how it played out. You know, there were girls right. that had been playing for three years. I hadn't played consistently sure. in three years. I wasn't ever healthy. And I could have 
I could have been great. I could have played well on a day, but it just wasn't enough in comparison to the girls that had been playing consistently for three days. And so my senior year, I played very minimal limits, very minimal. But I think that just goes back to what I learned sophomore year. It's like I had a different role than my best friend who was all Big 12 player of the year. You know, I, I learned to really rejoice in the successes of others. And so whether or not I got to actually play soccer in college, um, I was extremely thankful for the fact that I was at Baylor with incredible coaches, incredible teammates. And I really think it humbled me in a way. So, it, as you're saying all this, Lauren, a big thing that a lot of coaches will often observe about your generation, I'm using mm-hmm. that in, in air quotes, is no, that absolutely. it seems like a lot of athletes, I mean, not just students, but also athletes, if it gets hard, if there's a struggle, you know what, I'm just going to quit. It's just easier to go, you know, to, to just quit. And you may be aware of that sort of knock on on athletes uh, in in your generation. So I guess I'm wondering how... How do how do coaches look for and maybe what are some of the signs of athletes in your age group in your generation that aren't going to quit that they're going to have what you did which is come back after basically three separate injuries that for many athletes would have after the first one they would have stopped and you just kept going. How, what are the signs? Like, what should coaches look for in a in an athlete that has that kind of willpower and that kind of that kind of drive? Because I'm sure you even saw athletes at Baylor who just said, "Hey, this is too hard," or "I'm not playing enough," or whatever, and they they left. Um, and you, you see that going on around you. You didn't, and I'm wondering why and how do coaches? Is there something that they should look for uh, or ask? an athlete about to sort of uncover that before they bring them onto their team? That's such a good question. And it's so, it's so funny because I can't wait to talk about that in regards to survivor as well, because they asked me the same thing at my audition um, was how do we know you won't quit? Um, And I had all these, had all these examples, right? Because I I played and I'd gone through all of these things and I was like, well, this is why, and this is why, and this is why. But my coaches wouldn't have known that freshman year. Um, sure. I wouldn't have known. I hadn't, I hadn't been through anything that I could give a life example for. And so I think personally, mm-hmm. I think that you can see it in the way they play. You can see it in, you can see it when, and this is really for soccer coaches because I don't have a great example of, of sure. other sports, no, but when a player is at the midfield line and they get beat and there's, only two people behind them, do they turn around and wait a split second and then they're running back to try and help their teammates? Or do they get beat and they turn around and they're busting their ass to get back to help the people around them? Because they know, like, it's not the first mistake that matters. It's about how you react to it. And so I think that that's one of the the biggest things I would look for if I was recruiting someone is I don't care if you make 12 mistakes. I really don't because at the end of the day, we, we can coach mistakes. We can't, I don't think you can coach mentality. 
I think that right. you Absolutely. are either you are either intrinsically motivated and intrinsically you intrinsically desire so much to succeed and to push on and to be resilient. You have this, this sense of resiliency about you where it doesn't matter how many mistakes you make because you're going to try and correct them more times than you fail. You know, it's, sure. it's, it's, it's the person that misses a PK and goes out and kicks 50 penalty kicks a day to make sure she never misses one again. It's the player that gets there early at two hours before because she knows that they're, they're going to play a girl next week who can head the ball better than she can. So she's going to get out there and she's going to have her coach punt her balls in the air 50 times so that she can right. practice jumping and heading the ball. Like those are the girls that I would want on my team. I don't care how fast you are. I don't care how technical you are. I mean, those are great attributes to have, but if I could have a team of girls that would fight to the death for each other and for themselves and I can watch them play and I can that they're never going to give up no matter how many times they fail versus a team of girls that are really technical and re really fast but have no fight in them, I would, I would pick the team with resiliency and fight all day. And I don't know that there's a question you can ask for that. I think it's something that yeah. – because the thing, if you ask, yeah. right, if you ask me, I can tell you the answer. I can give right. you, you know, I can, right I can answer. BS you all day. I can say, oh, well, I would do this, this, and this. And no, I would never quit. But you don't know if someone's going to quit until you see them, until you watch them. And so I don't know that that's something you can, you can know um, when you recruit someone, when they're, I don't even know when they're recruiting now, 13. Um, right. I don't know. I don't know if that's something you can know. I think it's yeah. something you have to watch. And and I don't know anything really about recruiting yeah. when it comes to soccer, but I would say that you you see them as they mature, you watch them, and you watch how they react to their mistakes. And that right. is the kind of person that I want. It's someone who reacts positively to their mistakes. Right. Okay, so you teased it a second ago about your <laughs> survival uh, survivor interview process. And, yes, yes. And I want to move on to this, this little part of what I want to talk to you about, which is the show. So if you're listening and you aren't a fan of Survivor, first of all, you should be. But <laughs> second of all, there are, there are so many good athletic coaching, recruiting, relationship building lessons uh, on, that, on that show. And that's what I want to get into, uh, into uh, with you. Just real quickly for those that are listening, uh, we're not going to get into the whole um, behind-the-scenes Survivor process and go what was going on in this particular season of Survivor that Lauren competed in. Um, we're going to put a sh uh, link in the show notes in the podcast um, that you can watch um, with uh, a show from the Survivor Specialists, Phil and Alexa. Their show will go into all the detail about what was going on behind the scenes and how Lauren was strategizing in her game. It just, it's, what was that, like two hours or three hours long? If, I think it was, it was like two and a half hours. Two and a half hours. <laughs> yeah. So, so if you really want to get into that, that's going to give you all the detail you want. And then as far as who Lauren is personally, uh, there's a great podcast uh, with her friend and author and blogger and speaker, Grace Valentine, and her podcast is called I'm So Tired, which I don't know the reasons she named it that. Maybe you do, but that's the name of the podcast. I'm so tired. It's a, it's a, great, it's a great podcast. She's great. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll link to that as well. 
but I did want to, so here's the questions that I have. Um, I remember the first, I don't know when you started watching Survivor, I remember the first episode, it was on, um, sitting in my house, there was all this buildup because it was this new thing, reality TV, and this was in the, you know, the early 90s, and it had never been done before, and it was just so weird that this ship was dropping this, this group off, and they had to jump overboard and swim to an island, and I remember going outside, and my wife, she was out in the backyard, and said, you have got to come in and see this. This is the craziest <laughs> thing ever. Show number one. Who are these so psychopaths watched. that are doing this? Yeah, so, and how do they ever think of this? So, did you grow up watching the show? I did. I did. Um, I've watched the show for as long as I can really remember, um, and I would say, really, the the, the the season that I remember vividly was the first season that Parvati was on, which was Cook Island. And I think that's really when I fell in love with it um, because – Did I, you fall in love with it because of, like, the relationship aspect and the social side, or was it, the like, the competition not at first. part? No, okay. not at first. At first, when I was younger, I fell in love with the challenges. I would actually leave during the, the, the talking parts is what I called them. I'm like, eh, call me when there's a challenge. I would literally okay. leave during the social <laughs> aspect of the game and be like, call me when there's a challenge. And my parents would be like, Lori, the challenge is on. You know, and I, I'd run back so excited. <laughs> Um, and I think Cook Islands was really the turning point when I started watching the social aspects of the game, when I started watching people like Parvati and Ozzy and Candice and, and these players that go on to play multiple times um, actually play the social game. And I'm so intrigued by it. Um, yeah. And I don't even know when that was. When, when would that be? I guess I was maybe 13, I would assume. I'm not sure, but it was, yeah. it was a while ago. And so there's also now you've been on the show, and we'll get more into it here in a second, but this, the whole celebrity of it, the celebrity <laughs> part of now that it's done. Um, and, again, those other two podcasts uh, that I wrote, one is on YouTube and the other is, is a podcast that we'll give the link to, but it really goes into sort of like you, know, you sort of view yourself as this regular person, and now you know, you're getting recognized at school and you get these, uh, you know, People want to do interviews, and and how do you how do you like that the celebrity of it? I will say, and people can choose to believe me or not. When I applied to the show, I didn't realize. I mean, obviously, I knew it was a television TV. I'm not I'm not stupid, but I didn't realize that it was something people watched. It was not something I talked about with my friends. It was right. not something I watched with my team. It was something that no, my family watched. You didn't know it was as popular as it was. No, I had no idea. No idea. It was just something I loved. I was not applying to be on TV, I felt like. I was applying to play a game. And I think that that's something that you can see throughout my entire game is even when I was out there, I was not doing things to be on TV. And maybe if I had been more like, I don't even know, boisterous right. and done some crazy stuff, I would have had more screen time, but that's not what it was for me. For me, it was this insanely competitive game where you push yourself to the limit and you see what your body and really what your mind can do. And that's what was interesting to me. So to have people who want to follow me on Instagram, who want to DM me asking me questions about the show, who want my input about certain things that, that I'm like, you want my input? You, why? You know, I don't, I don't get it. And I, I appreciate it, and I love that people love the show. But for me, it's not like – and my parents will be the first people to tell you I am not famous at yeah. all. And they – at all. It's like I don't 
I don't feel yeah. that way. I don't, I don't think I am. And I mean, Survivor is not the show you go on if you want to be famous. That is, that's a different type of reality show. But there is a very, very big niche of people that watch it and love it. Um, and so, I mean, even yesterday, I was at Trader Joe's and this incredibly kind man comes up to me and he says, I'm so sorry to bother you. Um, and I'm thinking he wants the hummus that's in my hand, right? It's the last, it's the last hummus. <laughs> Where did and you I'm like, right? I'm like, oh, this is weird. And I'm just such a good, I'm such a big fan. It, I forget, I forget that I was on TV. Um, I forget that there were people that really experienced this journey with me and feel passionately about it with me. And I'm so thankful for people like that. Um, but it doesn't feel like I'm a celebrity. It just feels, right. well, first of all, because I'm not, but it doesn't feel like it, it was a TV show. It just felt like an incredibly, um, public, a largely publicized, publicized game I played. Sure. Sure. So get into the game. Um, the game planning part of it. So you're an athlete and you go, you know, in soccer, you're practicing through different game situations, uh, different times when you're one-on-one with a really good athlete that you're competing against. And now you're in this, you know, it's a competition, but it's not purely athletic. There's a lot of different levels to it, but, Going in, what type of game planning did you do um, heading into that game? Because I've heard you talk a little bit about uh, about that part of it, the, the game planning part that you walked into with. Um, yeah, that's, again, I've been asked that question a couple times. Um, I have, and I think this is largely in part to my experience at Baylor and how, you know, I, I went in there believing, okay, I'm going to play this way. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to win a Big 12 championship. I'm going to be the star athlete. You know, I had this plan, and that right. is not what happened. Um, it, I think that's what everyone's watching, I, you know, is you know, sort of like, oh, well, if I was there, I would have done this right. way. Exactly, and I did that. I did that. I did that. I did that. I did that when I was, when I was younger. I said, well, if I get there, like, I would – I would never tell someone I had an idol or if I did this, I, or if I was out there, I would do this, this and this, you know, and there's different things that you think when you're sitting on a couch watching a very small portion of what's actually going on. Um, but you don't know that you're, you, what you see is your reality. And so having not gone to Baylor, I think I may have had a different outlook of the game, but really walking into it, I thought I'm not going to know what's going to happen. I'm not going to know the people I'm with. I'm not going to know the twists. I'm not going to know the challenges. I'm going to have to be adaptable. I'm going to have to be the player that can adapt to absolutely anything. That's the only way that I will survive. So your game plan really was to not have a game plan and to be exactly. flexible and read the situation. So Yeah. I mean, I, I have certain things where I was like, okay, I'm going to try – People ask me, they're like, okay, are you going to downplay that you were a collegiate athlete? And I'm like, first of all, I am not quite athletic enough to have to downplay my athleticism, people. Like, that, that's not a thing. It's not like I'm a superstar athlete. And also, I am too competitive to try and lose, albeit right. I never actually had to try and lose because our tribe was so awful. Um, but right. it, there were those questions, and I was like, I know that I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to be me. I'm going to try, because I think when you're stripped of everything, truly, you have no food, you have no clothes, you have no shelter, you have no one to trust, you are you at your core. And who are you at your core? You know, are, are you kind? Are you, are you loving? Are you compassionate to those around you? Are you competitive? Do you yell at people during challenges? Me. 
Um, do you, are, are you mean? Are you hateful? Are you insecure? You know, those things come out when you have nothing. And I knew that I, you can't fake who you are when you have nothing. And so None I knew I was like, you know what? Time. Anyway, no, exactly. And so I was like, chance. if I am here for a long time and I go in, I go into this game faking who I am, you know, trying to be someone different than who I really am, it will come out if I'm here long enough. And so I knew my number one game plan was to be adaptable and to just be myself, to go out there and try and make genuine relationships and really be as kind to people as possible um, because that's who I am outside of the game. And I felt like, you know, I'm going to allow myself to to play this game, to be manipulative, to be schemy in air quotes, um, to try and strategize the best I can, but I'm also not going to ever cross a line that I that I wouldn't cross in the outside world. Sure. So you have the personal relationships, you just touched on that, and then you have the strategy part, which changes right. you know, probably several times a day, if not you know, every couple yeah. of days. So how do you, as you build these relationships, you get to know the people, and you find out even if you're competitors, you still... Um, you're going to find things that you like about them and that you, you're you sort of maybe quietly rooting for them because of their situation and their story and the times that you just you know have time to talk to them. I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, how much of a fight is that internally over that period of time, the personal relationship, oh, I've got to vote this person out or I've got to break my promise to them and go with somebody else. You know, that relationship versus the strategy, there's a reason you might make that decision. Like, how much of an inner fight was there with, with you and you just having gone through it inside those circumstances, you know, as it's playing out on, a, right. on an island and you're hungry and, you know, there is no... And you're you know, tired and you're cold yeah, exactly. and you're losing, yeah. Right. Um, I would say for me it was more hypothetical just because I never really truly was in a situation where I had to turn on someone who didn't who hadn't turned on me first, um, just because our team lost everything. You know, I was constantly down in numbers. Um, and I, I like when they turn on, when they turn on, when they turn on you and, you know, maybe you would assume that uh, that person, I can trust him or trust her. And then they turn on you. Like there's even that, the emotional part of it, that how, how hard is it to keep that in check? And that I, 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 I think back to, um, your soccer scenario where um, you you're you're down. Do you immediately look up and go you know go fall back to to support, or do you sit there and sort of whine for a second? You know, it's that instinctual thing that happens. I guess I'm just right. wondering: is that does that sort of kick in? No, that you yeah, have to no, catch yourself a, and say, "Oh, wait, don't get emotional. This is a game." Right. Or is it does that just become harder and harder to do on the show? Um. That that's a hard that's a hard question to answer. I will say I can give an example, um, and I'm not sure what episode number it is, but it is the episode um, after my closest ally voted out my other closest ally and probably best friend Kelly Wentworth. Mm-hmm. Um, she was voted out. Uh, we were in a tight alliance of three: War Dog, myself, and Kelly. And War Dog turned on us, and I felt blindsided. I felt betrayed. Uh, I had just lost my closest ally in Kelly. And I, I cannot come up with a reason why, but a lot of people talked to me after the Kelly episode. So when Kelly was voted out, before you see this next episode, they said, oh, my gosh, I'm sure you've cried a ton. Like, I can't wait to see how emotional you are. I can't wait to see how you seek revenge. And I remember thinking the week leading up to the next episode, you know, that's not me. You're not going to right. see that because I was so in game mode 
we get back to tribal and I am immediately, I didn't, I didn't cry. I was sad. And I, it was a very difficult transition because I was missing, you know, my best friend, the person I'd been with for at that point, 27 days. Um, I immediately went to someone and I said, okay, what is our next move? What are we doing? Because at this point I was on the bottom. I was probably next on the chopping block. And so I had to go and I had to call on the personal relationships I had already made. And I had to have a conversation with one of my other close allies who said, oh, our game's over, our game's over. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. If you want your game to be over, get off of my ship because I'm full steam ahead, man. Like, I am not, my game's not over. And it's not going to be over until Jeff snuffs my torch. And I do attribute a lot of that to this idea and of resiliency and being like, okay, what is next? Clear whatever happened before now. You can't change it. It's done. What can we do today? What can we do right now? that can make tomorrow better, that can make right. the next five days better, that can set you up in a position in order to succeed. And I think a lot of that does come from my background as a collegiate athlete is knowing, okay, you've made a mistake. And really yeah. it wasn't my mistake, but it is, you know, something bad has happened. What is your next move? What's your next step? What's next? Um, and, and what wonder, do you do? Yeah. As you were saying that though, I come back to like coming back from the injuries and you have now this role. Well, you go back to, um, uh, you know, playing in high school and all you can do is cheer at the camp uh, from the sidelines yeah. and yeah. you then have the injuries at Baylor and you have to come back from those and you play, you're sort of now in this new role that you didn't imagine that isn't the one right. that you necessarily wanted, but that that's your role now. And I'm just wondering, have you looked back and thought like or noted what athletic experiences you took and applied to your game in Survivor? Absolutely. I think, the, I think the number one thing is my ability to play different roles. I think a lot of people get stuck in this idea that, oh, I'm a leader, I'm a leader, I'm a leader, I'm a leader, I'm always going to be a leader, people have to follow me. And there are people that are like, yeah, I'm not really a leader, I'm more of a follower, I like to be quiet, I like to just let people do what they want to do. And I think that I'm extremely adaptable because of my experiences as a collegiate athlete and that I can be a leader when I need to be a leader. I can lead people. I can, I can do that. But when I need to be a follower and I need to cheer people on and I need to be the person that someone feels comfortable talking to or make somebody else feel important, and I think that's a huge thing I want to touch on as well after this, it's, mm-hmm. I, I can make people feel like, Oh no, you're the leader. You're, you're the important one. Like you are, so, you are important to me and I can cheer for them and I can put them ahead of myself. And I don't, that, that's something that I don't think a ton of people can do solely because of maybe pride. Um, they feel like, you know, I need to be the most important person. I need to be the one that's in charge. I need to be the one who's getting the credit. I didn't need that. I didn't right. need for the people to, that I was playing with to feel like I was the most important, to feel like I was the one in charge. I could do both when I needed to, and I could be a leader, I could be a follower, and I think that that was absolutely, oh, I attribute that to my experience at Baylor. I was going to say, in, in Survivor, as I've watched it, you some, I mean, most of the time, if you're not the leader, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> so, right. Um, yeah. That's yeah. Absolutely strategic. Absolutely. And too, I think, too quick. Oh, go ahead. Go no, ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like, I think that one the biggest downfall I see, especially from my season, is when someone gets too prideful and they feel like, you know what, this is what I want and this is what's going to happen because I want it. 
that's their downfall. They will get voted out next. You see it every episode. The second someone says, you know, I'm the puppet master, you're gone. You know, no one wants, no right. one's going to keep you around. And I think the ability to put someone above yourself or to at least pretend like you are. And there's a conversation that wasn't aired between War Dog and myself where he tells me, and I've made fun of him <laughs> so many times for this, and he's apologized so many times for this, but he comes to me, it's after the, after, before we vote him out and after we voted Kelly out, and he says, you know, you're never going to win. The only way you can win is if you sit next to me at the final and maybe there's a bitter jury. And for someone who has watched Survivor or who's even played Survivor, they're thinking, no way he said that to you. You know, that, that's crazy. But he did, and that's, that's how War Dog was, and we had been together for so long. And if I had reacted like, no, screw that, War Dog, I'm voting you out next, which was the plan that night and did end up happening, there would have been a huge blow-up at camp, and maybe that plan wouldn't have happened. What I had in, instead to do is be like, you know what, War Dog, you're absolutely right. Like, I really don't believe I have as good of a chance to win as you do, and hopefully we can still work together. You, you have to... You have to put your pride aside, and that is one thing that collegiate soccer has taught me. If, if nothing else, is that you are not the most important person in the world. There are other well, people that are just as important as you are. Yeah, and, and as you're saying, you're telling that story about you know people that are going in with you know you know pride, and I'm untouchable, and you know I can just right. basically I'm the puppet master. Of course, in college athletics, we usually find out about them on ESPN. Uh, the investigation has been launched or you know, some <laughs> other story. Like, I mean, so there's application. It's the same personality traits in college coaching right. as well, that that happens. Right. And, Absolutely. And so there's, there's a, a big correlation. It's not unique to a, a reality show game. It's, it's life. And, and so. That, uh, that, that happens. Um, a, just an off, before we get to some, some more of, uh, especially like on the whole idea of making people feel important and, you know, and being able to step back, I want to have you expand on that in just a second. But my one little sort of survivor nerd, um, show <laughs> question is, oh, I can't wait. When people go to an NFL game, you know, and there's you know, a TV timeout, and of course, if you're at right. home, the commercials come on. And if you're in an NFL game, what you realize is, players just sort of stand around and wait. There's nothing happening. Yeah. They just stand around Absolutely. the field. It's just they're waiting for the TV commercials to be done. Right. So what are you guys doing on the island 95% of the time that the cameras aren't on? And my sort of the follow-up question is like during that dead time, what if you find an idol or what if there's this meltdown argument that happens? Are the cameras just literally there and they're just recording – 24 hours of video in case something happens or there's sort of times where they tell you, okay, everybody just relax. You can't look for anything. Like how, how does that work? Yeah. So you are filmed 24 seven. Um, no matter where you go, you are not allowed to leave and have a conversation with someone without a camera on you. Um, you don't, I would say the odds of finding an idol without a camera on you um, are slim solely because they usually know when you're looking, although I did find mine without a camera on me. So I don't know that that adds to my, the validity of my comments. Um, so we did have to actually refilm me finding the idol. Um, and that's okay. only because I found it on my way back from the bathroom and they don't film you when you go to the bathroom. <laughs> um, yeah. So what, what you actually saw on TV was, was a refilm of that. It, it happened in that exact way. It sure. just, they didn't have it on camera. 
Um, So, yeah, you're filmed 24-7. The only times you're not filmed are when you are being transported to a challenge, when Mm -hmm. you are waiting to go to tribal council, when you're being transported to tribal council, and also about 10 minutes prior to leaving for tribal council. Um, So there, and when that is happening, you're actually on lockdown um, because, they don't want you talking and they don't want you having any conversations. You all are sitting in one area um, and right. the cameras are now off or moving or getting set up for the next thing um, when you're being transported to, and you have security around you as well. Um, and so there is, there is nothing, they, they want it to be as realistic as possible. And I right. will say that Survivor is very real. Nothing you see on there is scripted. Nothing you see on there is planted. Nothing you see on there is something that didn't happen. Um, they may edit it in a different way, but it is as real as it could possibly get. Um, and with that said, anything you don't see on screen, we is, is not filmed necessarily in the way. So like you don't see us getting transported to challenges right. during right. that time. We're not allowed to talk. Um, eyes are usually closed just because we're underneath a, a, um, in a boat. We're underneath the bottom of a boat. So we can't even see where we're going. A lot of us are probably sleeping getting ready for challenges. We have security down there to make sure we're not talking. No strategizing is going on. And it really wow, is. Good. Yeah. yeah, there really isn't. I mean, people are sitting there and there, there's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do. We're all right next to each other like sardines. You know, it, it, there's no secretiveness going on. Um, yeah, they're very, very, very strict about lockdowns. And then obviously right before tribal, you go through a bunch of checks, medical, costume, mic checks. Um, again, you're on lockdown. Um, so anything you don't see on screen, we're on lockdown. Yeah. Everything else yeah. is, is filmed 24-7. That means nights when we're sleeping, there's a night crew out there with infrared cameras or however that works, and, and they are they're and, filming you yeah. sleeping, yeah. Yeah, if you watch this last season, you know, Rick goes out and he finds an idol at night, which is amazing to me because, y'all, it is pitch black out there. I don't know how that happens, but he it is pitch black. So cheers to him. Um, you certainly yeah, were on one of the more entertaining seasons. Like, they're just the tribal councils that, oh you know, my the, gosh. the Imagine curves being there. and also, the emotion. Yeah. yeah, tribal councils are, like, 50 times longer than you see on screen. Um, they're probably, I'd say, on average, an hour and a half. So Wow. Wow. Okay, that's okay. interesting. Yeah. Um, so, but for the ninety-five percent of the time that the camera that they don't they don't show, it's literally just you sitting on a beach trying to eat, trying to get some sleep. I mean, it's just it, you're on an island, stranded. Is that yeah, true? Uh, well, yes, or definitely, walking yes, around? Definitely on an island. You're definitely on an island, stranded. I would say it works kind of like a little society or a little community um, mm-hmm. where uh, you know you wake up when the sun comes up and. I will say one thing when I, when I was off the show, I didn't sleep very well for probably a month just because I would wake up with a lot of paranoia. Um, I would wake up and I would wonder where people are definitely the day after. So day, it would be day 38. Um, then my first night at Ponderosa, I woke up and I, I actually tossed myself off the bed because one, I was in so much pain from being able to sleep on something so soft. Um, my body wasn't used to calming down at night wow. because I'd been sleeping on the dirt, but also I woke up and I, I was, so nervous about where people were and who was talking and what was going on and what I needed to do, you know? So the sun's up at five 30, you get up, you're talking, you're having conversations, trying to get up early enough to talk before people are actually aware of what's going on. You know, that's when a lot of the big conversations happen are in the morning. Um, and then 
we all just kind of sit around. We wait for tree mail because you don't know if you have a challenge or what's going on. Right. Um, and then if you get tree mail, then you kind of know and you, you can time it out of, okay, we had tree mail. We're probably leaving in about an hour. Um, let's make some rice. And so you get the fire yeah. started. People go out and, and just kind of live for about an hour. You know, people are going to the bathroom. People are collecting wood. People are, are trying to get the fire started. Then everybody's eating and everyone's getting ready for the challenge. And, and a lot of times people are having conversations. So, you know, sure. if I say, hey, you know, Kelly, you want to go, go to the well and get some water? That's pretty much like, yo, Kelly, we got to talk. Right. Sometimes. Right. If, right. I, if I ask someone directly. Now, if I was going to say, hey, guys, I'm going to the well to get water. Does anybody want to come? That is less of a, hey, I have something to talk about. You know? Right. It, it's very, very the important, point, the language you use. Oh, sure, sure. I can imagine. And, and the reason I asked the question is that, you know, it's not, you know, the show that we watch is, in, is boiled down to an hour, right. you know, less with commercials. Um, 42 and minutes, yeah. It, it's not a... It's not necessarily nonstop scheming and competition, but there is some right. like the mundane day to day, which probably also plays into how hard it is Absolutely. that you, you you're bored and you're hungry and it's another day and it it is yeah you know and so that that's the part that you don't see that also gets factored into you know who isn't performing well in competitions and who starts to lose it emotionally because you're just it's Absolutely. the boredom I miss the mundane Absolutely. you know day to day of of trying to make yourself comfortable in, in harsh circumstances. Absolutely. Um, okay, so in the sort of, you know, I want to boil this down sort of quickly into some lessons that I can, you know, collectively, you and I can give coaches as they start out a, you know, another year with their team, recruiting. You talk about making people feel important and sort of stepping back and letting them take the, the spotlight um, that you wanted to expand on. So I'll, I'll let you sort of expand on that as maybe – you know, talking to a college coach who is trying to put together a team, a program, manage a current program uh, with their athletes. Um, how about that whole concept of when to step back, when to take the lead, when to be in the spotlight, when to give it to someone else? Your advice to coaches when it comes to that? Right. Do you, um, do you mean how they how they should act, or the people that they should recruit? Uh, how they should should act because they're they're the ones that are kind of in charge of of their game, their program, in the same right. way that you were in charge of of uh, of Lauren's Survivor performance team. on on, uh, on Survivor. Right. right. Yeah, I think. Um, let me see, let me I guess what, yeah, I guess that's the most effective way. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have a very I have a very limited experience with you know, a collegiate coach. I had, I had one, well, I, technically I guess I had two, um, but they, they were married. Um, I had the same coaching staff the entire time I was there and, and they were incredible. Um, and I would say what I have learned from that and what I have also learned from Survivor and which is a situation in which you have to deal with a lot of different personalities and you have to deal with a lot of people from different walks of life that have grown up differently, that have, uh, that experience things differently, that take criticism and take, take compliments and just, just, just look at life differently. I've learned that there should be a standard. There should be a standard of how you treat people. There should be a standard of what you expect. There should be a standard of 
what you're going to do on a day-to-day basis that people can expect. There needs to be consistency. But with that said, you need to understand the players you have recruited, the players that are playing for you. Does someone react well to criticism? Does someone work better when, you know, you sit them down privately and tell them, hey, this is what you should do? Um, Does a player play better when you're complimenting them? Does a player care if you compliment them? Um, Does a player need to feel validated on a daily basis? Does a player really care if you go up to them and say, hey, you had a good practice, you know? I think that the biggest thing that I've learned from Survivor and from collegiate sports is that everyone reacts differently to the same sentence. So I could say... Wow, that's cool. That's really good. I could say, hey, we're having chocolate cake for dinner. You could have six people in the room, and that's a very... It's an odd sentence, I know, but you could say, hey, we're having chocolate cake for dinner. Every single person is going to see that differently. They're going to think... Were they t- one person could say, oh, were they talking to me? Like, am I part of that we? And that person is maybe a little insecure. And the person next to them is like, yeah, I love chocolate cake. I, I always get invited to these things, you know? Or the next person is like, oh, man, I told her, like, last month that I only like vanilla cake. She must not like me because she ordered chocolate. You know, there, there's just people that, that see things so differently. And just because as a coach you think, you know, I said last week that you have to work on your touch. Not every person is going to see that the exact same way. They're going to see it so differently. And so just because you feel like you've been saying the same sentence for however long you've been coaching, you have to understand that you have a group of, I'm I'm saying this from my experience, so you have a group of girls that all experience the same sentence in a different way from a different perspective, and they feel it differently. Um, and I think as a college athlete or as a college coach, you really have to be in touch with the way in which your players perceive the sentences and the words and and the standards that you set because they're not going to be the same. It doesn't matter who you recruit. You can recruit from the same city, at the same place, from the same team. They're not going to see or hear the sentences you say in the same way. Right. So part of it, what I hear you saying, Lauren, is that part of job with this generation athlete in college is not just coaching the X's and O's. It's actually understanding what makes that, that student athlete tick individually and coaching them on a more individual basis. Um, and, and almost rather than sort of forcing them to, well, because of course they'll have their program, they'll have their philosophy, and they want to buy into that, but it, what I hear this thing is that it could take a little bit of massaging and work, and you might need to see them uh, or show them the course differently, one one athlete versus another. Fair enough? Right, and I think, again, you have to look at my background, and I'm, I'm a female athlete. I am fully aware that females react differently than males. I mean, you could say the same sentence to a group of males, and they could all see it the same way. I don't know, <laughs> because I am right. a female. I've only really been around female athletes. Um, but I think that it rings true to everyone because that's how I felt it in Survivor. It's like I could say the same thing and it didn't matter if you were female or male, you were going to see it differently than, than the person next to you. And I think that just as an athlete in general and as, as a, actually as a coach, you want your players to feel like they are playing for something. You want them to feel safe. You want them to feel important. You want them to feel like they can go out there and they can give 
everything they have because they trust you as a coach. They trust you that you know what's best, that you understand them, that you have their best interests at heart. Because if you show them, you know, I understand this is the way that you learn. This is the way you play. You know, this is what you need after a game. Then they will feel the freedom to go out there and play their best because they know that they have someone looking out for them. Um, and that's, and, sorry, and, and, no, that's okay. And to jump in there to make the point, that's really what you had to do on Survivor was, exactly. of course, you go in wanting everybody to like Lauren. And yep. there were probably people that didn't like Lauren right from day one. Others said yeah. it took a good time. And then they were, and they, were and they, they aligned with you. And others right away that connected like you and you and Kelly on this past season. And I'm taking that and applying it to what you just said about coaches that, um, you know, coaches, college personnel in general, everything happens very quickly. Like, look, you're here, do this, do this, do this, and this is what's going to happen, and, and follow my timeline. And what I really heard you say was, coaches, you need to understand what drives each athlete, what drives, yeah. what are they going to respond to best, and you can get them to the same goal, just like you can get, you know, a strong alliance together that, you know, for you, Lauren, you end up in the top five in, in a very difficult game um, under very difficult circumstances. <laughs> That's, that took work. And and the, the same thing holds true, I think, with, with coaches, where I think there are many coaches out there who are uh, developing programs, trying to build programs, and they're the athletes come in and their question is or their complaint is, why aren't these kids just buying into my program? Or why don't they all right. see what we're trying to do here? And what I hear you saying is, as a coach, are you approaching them in a way that is unique to the way that they need to get to the same point? Are you taking the time to be able to do that? Um, so that is extremely, an extremely valuable lesson there for those yeah, coaches. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I definitely, like you said in Survivor, it's like, I was in a very tight alliance with Kelly Wentworth and War Dog, two very different people that we all wanted the same thing, you know, we, relatively, we all wanted the same thing. And the way that I responded to War Dog would not be the way that I responded to Kelly and vice versa. You know, if, if Kelly had come to me and said, hey, just so you know, I'm going to beat you in the end. You have no chance to win. I would have been like, you really think you're going to talk to me like that, girl? Like, you're my best friend. What are you thinking, you know? And I can have that kind of banter and conversation with her, whereas with War Dog, it's like I had, to, I had to be submissive. I had to say, you know what, War Dog, you're right. And so just understanding what internally drives someone and what, what ticks them off, what makes them proud, what makes right. them what they love, what they don't love, and, and how they react to certain situations is, I think, the most important part of being a coach. Right. Okay, so last question I have, nothing related to Survivor, but just you, <laughs> your uh, uh, a former college athlete and member of this generation that kids are, or the coaches are recruiting, but, um, that, but now, you know, being out of college sports, maybe you can come back and, and look back on this as I ask the question. Um, what piece of it do you give coaches on on what they need to understand about the way this generation, uh, how they make this decisions and what they value as they're going in, from high school into college. What What is the mindset that you would say coaches need to understand about these student-athletes that they're recruiting? 
Oh gosh, that's so all I'm asking you to do yeah. is to speak for an entire generation of student athletes. No, don't <laughs> I see that. I feel that kind of pressure. Um, it's it's funny because I, you know, I went through it. I, I'm removed from it now. But now my my little brother, who is now going to be a senior in, in high school, is going through that exact same situation. He's going through the recruiting process, and so I'm seeing it. You know, not only from my perspective, but also from his. Um, and it is. It's it's interesting. Obviously, he's he's a male who's who's looking to play football, um, so it is different. But I think that there is two things from from me um, that I would say, and also I guess because yeah. I'm speaking for an entire generation here. Um, yeah. I think num I think number one is that they want to feel wanted. They want to feel like we want you and this is what we are willing to do for you i think of one example and it'll be short but when i was, now, Lauren, I, was I have to i have to stop you i have to stop you real quick okay yeah, go ahead. lots of coaches that are listening they're just smiled and only because you use the word i didn't i didn't put you up to this that that they need to number one feel wanted correct yes <laughs> okay you can go on there's lots of coaches that that are um, I, I, you, you, you've proven one of my points, so but I'm not going to get into all that with you right now. But just, I just thought I would, for the coaches that are listening, that we've either been to the campus or they followed what we do. Um, that was, you know, straight from Lauren's mouth, not mine. So go ahead and continue, Lauren. I will attest to the fact that I have no idea what he is talking about. I don't know what point <laughs> he has made previously to this. But I stand by my position of yep. players okay. and. I mean, people in general, but especially players want to feel wanted. They want to feel important. Um, and my example being that when I was a freshman in at Baylor, there was a recruit. Her name is Julie James. She actually plays professional soccer now. She is incredible, an incredible person, an incredible player, um, All-American at Baylor. Um, my coaches drove from Waco to Dallas to watch her play in a high school basketball game. Not soccer, basketball. And I remember sitting there with my three best friends and saying, oh, my gosh, they must want her so badly. Obviously, rightfully so. She is incredible. We all knew it. But it was just the extra effort of, like, girl, we want you. We will come watch you play basketball. We want you so badly. We are here for you. We're your family. We care about you. But we want you. And so I would say that is number one. It's like if I could tell any coach anything, if there's a player you want, it's like dating. It really, truly is like dating, I think. It's like, how do I make them feel like, hey, I want you. We, I want you to trust me. I want you to love me. I want you to come and play for me because I want you, and you are important to us. So, yeah, number one, for sure. I don't even think my second point is even relevant anymore because that one was so, <laughs> so important. But, um, well, what, what is I, that I, second point? Just, just for kicks <laughs> and giggles. I would say the second point is, that you want to make them feel safe, um, okay. I, I think. I think that they, whether or not players or my generate of my generation will will confirm or attest to this, because maybe they feel like it makes them feel weak. I think that young athletes at 16, 17, 18 years old, um, and I can I can test this because of my brother. It's like they want to feel like when they leave home or when they leave whatever situation they're in right now, that they're going to a place that they can trust, that they can feel safe, and that they're going 
to make their home. They're, they're leaving home for the first time. They're going somewhere foreign with new friends, new coaches, new experiences. It's scary. And so what can you do to make them feel comfortable and safe when they get there um, in order for them to feel like they can do and they can perform in the, or that they can perform in the best way possible? Because if you're scared or you're nervous or you don't feel like your coaches like you or you don't feel like you have a good foundation of trust and you're not comfortable with the people around you, you're not going to perform at the best, at the best level. And you aren't going to want to go there. If you don't feel safe going there without your support system, you won't go. Well, Coach, that is going to wrap up an incredible way to open up our new podcast season, season four of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. We are so thankful to Lauren O'Connell for sharing insights and and her experience and lessons in perseverance and strength and competitiveness and strategy and leadership and all the things that she had to muster to make it that far on a very uh, really incredibly challenging show uh, in that experience that she had on the island. And uh, we, again, appreciate her uh, because she has a very busy schedule and we uh, we are glad that she took some time to talk to us. Um, one quick note, um, at the end of the show, uh, once we stopped recording, I just complimented her on what a incredible leader she was uh, and, and uh, just her message and uh, what she could teach student athletes and even coaching staffs about perseverance and strategy. And I kind of asked off the cuff, hey, if somebody was interested in bringing you in to talk to their team or to their athletic department, would you be open to that? And she said, yeah, that might be kind of fun. I would be open to that. So if you have an interest in having Lauren O'Connell come and talk to you, or your team, or your department, and spend a day on campus, um, I can get you details. You would just want to email me, dan at dantutor.com. Uh, I can forward you Lauren's information, and uh, and that would be, I think, incredible for your team to hear her if that's something that you're interested in. If you found some motivation and some, uh, some connection with Lauren through listening to this. But uh, regardless, we're really thankful that she had the time to to do this. And Coach, we're thankful that you're listening to the podcast. This season, we're going to feature more coaches, more experts, and really interesting topics to make you a better recruiter, a better coach, a better leader for your program and for the student-athletes that you get to connect with. So make sure you listen. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play. Listen on Stitcher. Tell your fellow coaches in your department that you're listening to this, that it can help them become better recruiters as well. Coach, that's it. We really appreciate you. We are looking forward to this season, like I said. And that's going to wrap up today's show. The College Recruiting Weekly Podcast, Season 4. It is underway, and we're thankful that you're here with us. We'll talk to you next time, Coach. The College Recruiting Weekly Podcast is a production of Tudor Collegiate Strategies, copyright 2016 through 2020. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or stream us on Stitcher, and make sure to tell the coaches in your department about the show. Email the host at dan at dantutor.com and visit the website to access more of the free resources we give to the college coaching community. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here on the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast.